That was just a blast, and I feel like I could go back through and do it all over again and learn even more than uh, what we did the first time around. In his book, Start With Why, Simon Sinek argues that of all the questions we can ask, why is one of the most important, is the one that we should ask first, as the title suggests. Think about if you begin to ask why, and I don't mean in sort of like the teenager, like, well, why do I have to do blah, 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 but I mean in the I want to understand kind of way. You go out, you want to turn the car on, it doesn't start, you know, it's broken. We want to ask why. Okay, well, maybe there's not juice. Okay, why is that the case? And why helps us sort of uncover what is going on? Now, he's writing in sort of a business context. Business is the question they need to ask before anything else is the question why. Why does our business, why does our organization exist? What is our mission? What is our purpose? What is it that we do that no one else can do? We're going to start with why. Why asking and then answering why doesn't do, it doesn't do much good just to ask it if we don't answer it, but asking and answering the question why will often uncover our motivations, right? Like, why am I doing what I'm doing? What is it that I'm trying to get? What is it that I'm after? What are the goals that I, that I personally have? Asking and answering why can often uncover what our purpose and what our foundation is. What I want to do for the next several weeks is ask and answer that question, why? Why Cloverleaf Baptist Church? Why do we do what we do? What what, what is the reason for our existence? Cloverleaf Baptist Church, you could say, we we exist because some Christians back in 1960-something or rather got together and started a church, and that's why we're here. But I want to ask you not so much like the question of our, of our origin, but the question of our, of our purpose and our mission. What is it that we are doing here in this community? What is the mission? What is the purpose? Why do we do what we do? And why do we do things the way that we do things? Maybe you've asked that question here. You, maybe you've been a, a member here for a long time. Maybe you've just come in in recent years. Maybe you ask, why do we structure our services the way we do? I've not been in a church that has a, a prayer of confession. That feels kind of different. Why do we sing all of these hymns with yeah, that last hymn we sang, the church is one foundation. It's not the way that we normally speak. Why do we sing this old hymn with all of these biblical allusions in it? Why are we singing new hymns as well? I thought, well, if the old ones are good, why are we singing new ones like, oh, church arise? Aren't the good ones enough? Why do we take 45, 50 minutes for some guy just to stand up here and talk about what the Bible says and try to apply it to our lives? Why didn't we just read an entire chapter of Scripture, Isaiah 54? Was that just kind of random, or is there a reason for that? Why next Sunday are we going to celebrate the Lord's Supper? Why do we fence the table, and why, why do we do that the way that we do that? Why do we not do easy believism and just sort of lead everybody in a sinner's prayer, then have people raise a hand and then declare them saved? Why don't we do that? Why do we do outreach the way that we that we do with sort of minimal structure and program and try to just encourage people to get out and to to serve in the community? Why do we as a church want to move towards a plurality of leadership here as, as opposed to just sort of one guy doing everything? Why? I want to answer those questions by going back to the foundational mission of the church that we see unfolded in the book of Acts. Now, just so you know, I'm not going to do a verse by verse study through the book of Acts. Um, That's my preferred way of going through books of the Bible. Maybe that's another question. Why do we preach through books of the Bible as opposed to doing topical stuff? We're going to take rather look at various themes and high points as we go through Acts because here's what's going on in Acts. We're on the other side of the resurrection. It begins with the ascension of Jesus, and it shows what the earliest followers of Jesus did once he left. We see them starting churches, and we sort of get the the blueprints for what the church is supposed to be doing, what the church is supposed to look like, the values, the core values, if you will, that should define a church's ministry. Here's where we'll be going. Today, we're going to talk about what our mission is. Our mission is to make disciples. There you go. We'll close in prayer. We're all done. Uh, Next week, we'll talk about gospel-centered fellowship. What is fellowship? It's not just a shorthand for having a meal after church and eating fried chicken, but what is fellowship? Like, what does it mean to have this camaraderie, this koinonia between believers? We'll talk about membership and discipline and those sort of things. Beginning in August, we'll talk about God-focused worship. What is it, what's special about corporate worship? Why can't we just all go out in the woods individually, sit in a tree stand, or go through a line in the water and worship Jesus by ourselves? Why corporate? What is it about church and worship that goes together? We'll talk about spirit-empowered evangelism. 
What, what is the gospel and how do we go about sharing the gospel in a way that is responsible and that is theologically consistent and that agrees with what we see in the word of God? We'll talk about Bible-saturated teaching. Why do we do this expositional, verse-by-verse, let the point of the text be the point of the sermon kind of way of preaching? Why not just do sort of things that are really helpful and practical and lead with people's felt needs? And then finally, getting into September, we'll talk about scripturally ordered leadership. What should the leadership of the church look like? What if the ways that we have always seen churches led don't line up with the way that God wants the churches to be led? We'll see these things all in the book of Acts. So why do we do what we do? We have, at our church, we have a mission statement, and I'm not here to preach our mission statement, but to preach Scripture, but I think our mission statement does convey Scripture. We say this, Cloverleaf Baptist Church exists to glorify God, and, and Benjamin, thanks for that special, to God be the glory. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We'll talk about that today. Then we say this, we accomplish this mission through God-focused worship, gospel-centered fellowship, Bible-saturated teaching, and spirit-empowered evangelism. That is what our church is all about, and I want to go back to Scripture to show what underlies those things. So this morning we'll be in Acts chapter 1, looking at verses 1 to 11. The book of Acts is written by Dr. Luke. Uh, It's actually volume 2 of a history that he gives to a guy called Theophilus. Volume 1 is the gospel of Luke, and then volume 2 is the book of Acts. And it goes from the ascension of Jesus all the way to Paul's imprisonment in Rome. It covers about 30 years of church history. If we didn't have the book of Acts, the rest of the New Testament would be pretty unintelligible to us. How do we go from 12 Jewish, in fact, Galilean guys with some Jewish rabbi running around Palestine, the end of the Gospels, how do we go from that to churches being in places like Rome and Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae? What happened in between? What is it about this group called the church? Because we don't really see churches in Matthew or in Mark or in Luke. We don't see churches in the Old Testament. What what happened to to bring this thing into existence? That is what the book of Acts is all about. So follow along as I read our first 11 verses, and then we're going to dive in and just kind of glean from this text what our mission is meant to be. The former treatise, the, 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 the former, the first book, Have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach? Okay, that's Luke. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments, given orders, given charges unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, after his suffering, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So this is kind of the prologue to the letter, to this book. He's saying, okay, I wrote you volume one. This is now going to be volume two. Volume one ended with the ascension of Jesus at the end of his ministry. Volume two is going to pick up where that stopped. And being assembled together, or it's even could be rendered and and eating together is the idea of of eating salt. Is the idea here of eating a meal, of even enjoying a covenant together. We see in Luke's gospel, Jesus gathering with the apostles and breaking bread with them, maybe even celebrating communion with them. We see him asking for a honeycomb and a fish to say, guys, I'm I'm really resurrected. This is not a hologram. This is not an apparition. I'm really alive. Okay, so eating together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. Remember, they were down in Jerusalem for Passover. Jesus is betrayed, crucified. He rises again. They're all in Jerusalem. He says, don't leave, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. So wait in Jerusalem because you're going to get the Holy Spirit in just a really, really short time. The long-awaited, the long-promised Holy Spirit is going to be come upon you. You're going to be baptized with him. You're going to be filled with him. He's going to indwell you and empower you. By the way, 40 days from the resurrection to the ascension, And then 10 more days beyond that to Pentecost when they get the Spirit. Pentecost, 50 days from Passover to to Pentecost. That's the time frame. Verse 6, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? He'd been telling them about the kingdom. So we're thinking, okay, the Holy Spirit, that's that end times gift that's prophesied in Joel in the Old Testament. And he's raised from the dead. We know he's the Messiah. Now's the time that Israel is going to get their kingdom back again. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. God's going to unfold the end time events as he sees fit. 
But in contrast, you shall receive power after, the, after that the Holy Ghost, after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. There's the mission, by the way. You're going to be a witness to me. You're going to go the world over to be a witness, to tell people what you have seen and heard throughout the death, burial, and resurrection. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. A cloud in the Bible, symbol of the divine presence, the Shekinah glory. He's being received back into the presence of God the Father. And while they looked steadfastly, they stared toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Okay, they're angels. That's code words for angels. Which, which also said, ye men of Galilee. Like, hey, wake up. Earth to disciples over here. Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. He ascended physically and visibly, gloriously. He's going to come back the same way and every eye will see him. This text lays the foundation for the rest of the book. And what we see happening from here on out is really Acts 1-8 being unfolded. The opening chapters, there are witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. Then they go to Samaria a little further out. And then they go to the uttermost part of the earth. They begin taking the gospel to places where it had not been known before. This is laying out the mission that the rest of the book is going to explain. So what is the mission of the church? Let me say it very simply. The mission of the church, both universally, corporately, and locally, is the Great Commission. Our mission is to call sinners to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus. Our mission is to, 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 to gather those sinners, those forgiven sinners together into a community where we can learn everything that Jesus taught us to do so we can grow into conformity into his image. We're called to proclaim the good news of the resurrection of the crucified king and call all men everywhere to bow to his rule. I think we can summarize it a couple of different ways in Acts 1.8. It's go and bear witness. In Matthew's version of the Great Commission, it is go and make disciples. It's this all-encompassing. It's bigger than just, hey, get people saved, but it's bringing people into conformity to be like Jesus Christ. So here Jesus is commissioning commissioning his apostles, laying the foundation of the new covenant people of God. In the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes. The New Testament, there were 12 apostles. It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm constituting a new Israel. I'm constituting a new people of God that we call the New Testament church that carries on and fulfills that mission God had for his people. Now here's my plea to us today. Cloverleaf Baptist Church, we must stay on mission. You know what you got to do to drift from your mission? Absolutely nothing. Right? You know, like kids, you give them a job, like, hey, go clean the bathroom. You know what you got to do for the kids to get off mission? It's just nothing. They'll, before you know it, they'll be fighting with their sibling or off playing with Lincoln Logs. We're the same way. It takes rigorous focus for us to always say, let's stay focused on the mission that King Jesus has given to us. So let's just unpack that mission for a minute. I want to talk about five facts regarding our mission. These opening three verses makes a really interesting statement. Verse 1 says, I told you, Theophilus, what Jesus began to do and to teach. Did you notice that that word began? What does that imply? That implies that what Luke is about to give to us is the continuation of what Jesus did. There's a continuity between what Jesus did in his earthly ministry and what the apostles do as they carry on the, 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 the mission, the ministry of Jesus. And from the ministry of Jesus, what Jesus began to do in teach, there's a lot that Jesus did. He healed people. He preached the good news. He called people to repent. But if you read the Gospel of Luke, and we preached through Luke earlier in the year, or was it last year, one of the big things that Jesus did was he got these 12 guys, he called them out, and he spent an inordinate amount of time investing into 12 people. He spent an inordinate amount of time making disciples. Now, what's a disciple? A disciple is a learner. A disciple is someone who learns with the aim of imitating the life of the teacher. In other words, what Jesus began to do and to teach was to preach the gospel and to make disciples. Which that implies the mission of the apostles on this side of the ascension is to preach the gospel and make disciples. So let me give you this first fact about our mission. Our mission is to make devoted disciples, not shallow converts. I'm sort of extrapolating from what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up, verses 1 and 2. What do we see Jesus doing in the the Gospel of Luke in volume 1? Making disciples. 
not just converts. I think one of the ways that the church gets off mission is the church begins to think that the mission of the church is to make converts rather than disciples. You get this, this idea called easy believism, which is, you know, go to someone in like 30 seconds and be like, do you agree you're a sinner? Like, yeah. Do you believe Jesus died for you? Yeah. Do you believe he rose again? Yeah. Okay, say this prayer. and Boom, now you're saved. There are millions of people who have been inoculated to the gospel of Jesus Christ because they have been popishly declared saved by some evangelist who barely gave them the gospel. Our mission is not to simply make converts and let's have an altar call and all these people are here and say a prayer and boom, here you go. We could go back and look at the parable of the sower where Jesus talks about these different responses to the word. Again, Luke and Acts saying the same thing. Go back to Luke's version of the parable of the sower. Jesus talks about those who receive the word really quickly with, with a lot of emotion and then it's strangled. It never brings forth fruit. These people who sort of have a flash-in-the-pan conversion, but they, are never, they never grow to become disciples of Jesus. The Great Commission is not for us to go out and get a bunch of decisions for Jesus, but it's to make disciples of Jesus. So what did Jesus do? He performed miracles. What did Jesus do? He called sinners to repentance. What did Jesus do? He trained and made disciples. The most important thing that Jesus did is he came to die a substitutionary death on the cross. That's a big phrase. We are sinners in the eyes of a holy God. And there's nothing that we can do to atone for our own sins because God is infinitely holy. And so Jesus came dying in our place, bearing the penalty that we deserve. And you read the Gospel of Luke, there's this magnetic pull towards Jerusalem. There's a sense in which the climax of everything is the cross. That's what Jesus began to do. Now, he said, it is finished. He completed the work of redemption. Jesus performed redemption. Our mission is to proclaim redemption. That's what Jesus did. So the argument I'm making here this morning is that our mission is to make disciples, to learners and followers of Jesus. We could define it this way. Making disciples means helping people find and follow Jesus. That's our mission. It doesn't stop with someone simply professing faith in Jesus Christ. The task of disciple-making, this is really important encompasses the entirety of the Christian life. If you're a Christian here today, you are a disciple of Jesus. You're a new believer here today, you are a disciple of Jesus. We are called to follow him and to learn of him. That's why everything we do as a church, we can put under that umbrella of disciple-making, gathering for worship. That's the aim of disciples, is to worship and to love and to admire the Jesus who saved them. Fellowship. Fellowship is one of the ways that we get steel into our spine. It's one of the ways that we get the strength and the stride that we need as we run after Christ. Teaching. Why do we need to know doctrine? Why do we need to know what the Bible says? Because Jesus literally says in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, part of the Great Commission is teaching them, people who get saved, to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. You know how long it's going to take us to learn everything that Jesus commanded us? Our entire lives. It's almost as if we need to get together, I don't know, once a week and have someone open the Bible and explain it and apply it and have accountability so that we can make it a reality in our lives. Oh, we call that thing the church. All right, so disciple-making is what Jesus started, but it's also what he commanded. Verse 2, back to Acts 1, verse 2. Jesus began to do until the day he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments unto the apostles. What are those commandments? What were the final commandments that Jesus gave the apostles before he ascended to heaven? The Great Commission. So in Matthew's account, he says, All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe, to do everything that I have commanded. That's one version of it. In Luke 24, which would be the version that Luke is thinking about, back in Luke 24, Jesus had told them that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's the message. So so Matthew is emphasizing the scope of it. Luke's account of it is emphasizing the content that we preach is that Jesus died on the cross for sinners, and if you repent and believe, every sin can be forgiven. That's the message that we take on our lips to every nation. In John's gospel, just back across the page from where we're looking, John 20, 21, and 22, he says, Peace be unto you as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. The ministry of Jesus has continued on in the mission of the church. And he said unto them, 
When he said this unto them, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now, he's not saying we go around with sort of this power to be like, you're forgiven, you're not. Rather, we come proclaiming the message that if people receive that message, their sins can be forgiven. If they reject that message, their sins will not be forgiven. It is what Jesus commanded us. So until we reach the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8, and the end of the age, Matthew 28.20, this is the mission that we have been given. That's the Great Commission, is calling sinners to turn to Christ in faith and then teaching them to become lifelong worshipers and followers of Jesus. This mission of making disciples is what Jesus began, it's what Jesus commanded, and it is what Jesus continues through the book of Acts. Now take a look at the top of the page in Acts. My Bible has this title, The Acts of the Apostles. How many of you have that title in your Bible, The Acts of the Apostles? Let's say these are the things that the apostles did. It's not A-X-E like they're deodorant, but the, the actions that they did. Uh, that's the early title of the book. One of the earliest manuscripts of, of Acts has that title on the top. The, 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 the Acts, the things that these guys did. And indeed, if you read Acts, you see Peter preaching and Paul preaching and the apostles going out and, and preaching. But there's other ways we could phrase this. We could say it is the act, the acts of the Holy Spirit. The, listen, the apostles can't do diddly squat until the Holy Spirit comes upon them. That's why Jesus says, you guys need to wait in Jerusalem until you get the Holy Spirit. And so it's really the Holy Spirit who is working through and preaching through Peter and Paul and all the guys who go out and make the gospel known. But you could even, you could even take a, a wider angle lens. Jesus is the one who sends the Holy Spirit. It's by his ascension as king that he sends the Spirit to his people, signifying that he now rules from the throne of heaven. I think the, the best way to think about what, who's, who's acting in Acts, it is the, the acts of the risen and glorified Christ through his Spirit-empowered people. And guess what? It is continuing to this day. The book ends very abruptly with Paul under house arrest, and it's like the story continues. We are awaiting the Acts 29 and Acts 30 and Acts 384 to be written. Continuing on today, even at Cloverleaf Baptist Church. So even today, it's not as if Jesus ascended to heaven and he just sort of sits down and puts his feet up and gets sort of a, a heavenly glass of sweet tea to see what's happening on earth. No, he is continuing to actively work through Cloverleaf Baptist Church and through churches all over the world that look like this one and look different than this one anywhere where his name is believed and proclaimed, where his spirit dwells, he's continuing to work. The same Jesus who was literally at work in the Gospels is literally at work even today through his church. We are part of an enormously awesome story. It's not that Jesus has gone to heaven and been like, do the best you can till I get back. No, he's actively working, actively empowering, actively glorifying himself through his people. So that same mission of making disciples and not just shallow converts continues on in Acts. So Paul, or rather Peter, preaches this incredible message on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. What happens? They don't just say, all these people now believe in Jesus, and he's like, see you guys later. We're going to move the crusade to the next town. Best of luck to you. No, look at verse 41, Acts 2.41. Then they that gladly received his word, okay, these people who believe in Jesus, these people who put their faith in him as Messiah, were baptized. What's the deal with baptism? It's them publicly saying, I'm a Jesus follower. I have become a follower of him. I have been converted. And the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Okay, this is mind-boggling. One sermon, 3,000 people are converted to Jesus, go through the waters of baptism, and they continued steadfastly. Okay, continued steadfastly doesn't mean they popped in like once every eight weeks. No, this was even daily, we were told later on, just a few verses down. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Okay, that's teaching. That's what's going on right now. They would gather and listen to the apostles teach the word of God and teach the Bible. And they continued steadfastly in fellowship. Like they're, they, they're, they had this incredible thing they share together, that they all believe in Jesus. And they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread and, and prayers. That's worship. Breaking of bread, distributing the elements of the Lord's Supper, remembering Jesus, and offering prayers to him. This does not sound like to me shallow converts that pray a sinner's prayer that never have seen it again. The people who follow Jesus steadfastly. Now you read on in Acts, you find out that persecution breaks out. And yet they keep following Jesus. They keep following Jesus when it's inconvenient. They keep following Jesus when it is costly. 
This is not just about numbers. This is about faithfulness. This is about gathering people together in churches. Later on in the ministry of Paul, Paul goes and preaches, and he's in Gentile and Jewish areas. A bunch of people come to faith in Jesus. He comes back around in Acts 14, verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and taught many, so this, 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 this preaching, this declaration, this heralding of the gospel, of the good news, this teaching, this explanation, they returned again to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, okay, places where people have already come to faith in Jesus, confirming the souls of the disciples, strengthening this, let's get your roots down deep, and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we, through much tribulation, must enter into the kingdom of God. They, they, they did not believe this idea that you pray a prayer one time and then just go on living your life however. They believed that when you get saved, there's a new direction in your life. And that pursuing that new direction is part of the Great Commission. Okay, hopefully I've made the point here. We could go on and on. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul pleading with the elders of the church at Ephesus to feed the flock. The mission of Jesus is being carried out by the people of God in this book. It's a mission that involves preaching the gospel, calling sinners to believe, organizing them into churches, and then teaching them to come to a place of maturity so that the cycle can continue on and on and on. The reason why we have a church here today that believes the gospel is that cycle has continued on and on over 2,000 years. People preaching the gospel, raising up mature disciples who then go out and do the same thing. Y'all tracking with me? It's what Jesus began to do. It's what Jesus is continuing to do down to this day, making disciples, people who find and follow Jesus, people who are learning and growing. Okay, now that is my longest point because that's the one that's got sort of laying the broadest foundation biblically for what's going on in Acts. I promise these next ones will move through a little more quickly. That's the first fact about our mission. What is our mission as Clover Leaf? is to make disciples. We're not just here for numbers and fill the house. No, 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 no. Make people who will follow Jesus all the days of their lives. Second fact, our mission, and this is very clearly spelled out in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, is spirit-empowered. It's spirit-empowered, not human-dependent, okay? So it's, it's about making disciples, not just converts. It's spirit-empowered, not human-dependent. Now, how many churches sort of resort to man-made methodologies to try to carry out the Great Commission? How often is it tempting to say, let's come up with sort of something creative and clever on our, on our own terms to do what Jesus has commanded us to do? Now, I am all for creativity. Preaching the gospel does require creativity. Bringing people to faith in Jesus does require that we earnestly plead and pray and preach. But ultimately, the power is not of us. It's of the Holy Spirit. Look in verses 4 and 5. Hey, they're assembled together. And Jesus tells them, don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. It's just going to be 10 days from the ascension, so a week and a half. Just stay put in one place and wait. Now, what did they do while they were waiting? Down in uh, verse 12, they returned unto Jerusalem, unto a mount called Olivet, uh, from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, the Sabbath day's journey. And when they were coming, they went into an upper room where they abode both Peter and James, and John, and Andrew, and Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James. Okay, the twelve apostles. These all continued with one accord in prayer. So what did they do? Jesus tells them to wait, and so they go to Jerusalem, they wait, and they pray. Jesus had told them, God will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And so they ask, you've promised this, so we're going to pray for this. And when the day of Pentecost comes... They indeed receive the Spirit. So even though Jesus has died on the cross paying for the sins of the whole world, even though Jesus has raised from the dead proving himself to be the Son of God and sort of sealing the deal of, of, of redemption's work, even now he says you have to wait for the Holy Spirit. He says I have to ascend for the, for the Spirit to descend. Now he calls this the promise of the Father, the thing that the Father has promised. Here's the thing that's interesting. You go back to the Old Testament, you find out that the Holy Spirit is the promise. In Joel chapter 2, in fact, this is the passage that Peter will preach on, the text that he will select on the day of Pentecost. Joel chapter 2 tells us that in the last days, there's going to be all these signs in heaven, and then God will pour his Spirit out upon all flesh. Um, Ezekiel chapter 36 
we get this same promise in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you. This promise that in the last days, the Holy Spirit of God would not just come upon people. God would not just dwell in the midst of his people by the, via the temple. But God himself would dwell within his people. We see it in the book of Isaiah 32, verse 15. I'll pour my spirit out upon the dry ground. Over and over again, the Old Testament predicts this day. At the end of history, when the spirit of God will be poured out upon all flesh. And so it's the promise of the Father. Jesus reiterates that promise in in John's gospel that when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will teach you all things. He will glorify me. He'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. To summarize, the, the giving of the spirit is the sign that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. Like the, Jesus rules and reigns now. That's the connection that, that Peter makes in, in Acts chapter 2 in verse, let's see, verse 33. Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has sent forth this, which you now see in here. It's the proof that Jesus now rules and reigns that he is king, that the kingdom is inaugurated. It's the proof that the new covenant has been instituted is the proof that the last days have begun, the giving of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the theology going on behind this. And of course, Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. This language should make us think back to Exodus chapter 40, when the Shekinah glory filled the tabernacle, and in in Chronicles, when the glory of God filled the temple of Solomon. This is to say, this group of people that is here is the new temple of God, the dwelling place of God, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this is where it all is launched, where the New Testament church begins its unique ministry. So they have to wait. Now for us, according to 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, everyone who believes in Jesus is baptized by the Spirit. Romans 8 verse 9 says, if you have not the Spirit of God, you are none of His. This this idea that you you become a believer in Jesus and then later on you get the second blessing or you get the Spirit is sort of looking at something unique that God does in salvation history. Acts chapter 2, it's a unique sort of high-pointed salvation history and say, well, that's the way it is all the time. Well, we've got to read on in the Bible to find out from this point on, everyone who believes in Jesus receives the Spirit of God. Now, back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, you will receive power after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you. Think about the mission that he has given to us. It's to make the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus known to every ethnic group on the planet. That's staggering. Not just every country. Don't just look at a map. Oh, there's about 200 countries. Good, there's missionaries there. We're doing a good job. Every ethnic group. There's about 7,400 unique ethnic groups that are yet unreached in our world. So anybody out there who's like, I can do that. The mission we have is to go and tell people who love their sins. Why do people sin? People sin because they love sin. To tell people who love their sin to say there's a holy God in heaven who hates your sin and is going to judge it. And to send his son Jesus who died on the cross for you to be delivered and you need to turn from that sin. Good luck with that. To tell people who are doing something that they love that they need to turn from the very thing they love the most to a Jesus that they don't even like. Our mission, as was described to the Apostle Paul, is to open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind. In a sense, it is to raise those who are dead. Anybody out there would have the audacity to say, I have the power in and of myself to raise the dead or open the eyes of the blind. We would be bonkers to claim that kind of power. I want you to hear this. The mission that Jesus has given to us is one that is absolutely impossible for us to carry out. Talk about mission impossible, this is it. We do not have the ability to carry this mission out. Only God does. And that is why the Holy Spirit must indwell us. That is why the Holy Spirit must empower us. Because the power cannot be of us. We don't have the capacity to raise the spiritually dead. We don't have the ability to give faith to anyone. We don't have the ability to create repentance in anybody's heart. But the Holy Spirit of God can, and he's the only one who can. 
Only the Holy Spirit can break hardened hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can open blind eyes. Only the Holy Spirit can give understanding of the gospel. Winning the world, making disciples, and establishing churches is a divine miracle accomplished only by divine power. We might combine all of our persuasive ability, all of our creativity, all of our talent of everybody in this room, and we would not have the capacity to convert even one sinner, much less reach the nations. What Jesus is saying in verses 4 and 5 is you guys are utterly dependent on the Spirit. Now, what does that mean in practice? That means we dare not go do anything without bathing it in prayer. Prayer is the expression of our dependence. You've got a loved one. Some of you have family members who are not believers in Jesus. You know, I need to go tell them the gospel. Absolutely, God has put you in their lives to tell them the gospel. But before you ever dream of speaking to men about God, speak to God about men. Take them before the throne of grace. Being dependent on the Holy Spirit means I'm not going to trust in my own methodologies and and ideas. I'm going to trust in what God has said in his word. I'm not going to sacrifice the clarity of the message on the altar of popular acceptance. Some people want to do that daily. Well, we don't want to talk about what the Bible says about homosexuality. We don't want to talk about what the Bible says about hell or about judgment because that's offensive to people. Listen, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. One of the ways we trust God is just saying, here's the message he's given. We're going to make it known to the world. It's a message that to the sophisticated is utter folly, and to the religious is a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block. It's something that people look at and they trip over, and it's just like, how could God show grace to sinners? Won't that make people want to sin? Why would he allow himself to be crucified on a cross? And on and on it goes. There's a level of sort of insanity and audacity that comes in sharing the gospel with someone to say, this message is crazy to the natural mind. Unless God does a work, nobody's going to believe it, which guarantees that if somebody believes it, God gets all the glory. That no flesh should glory in my sight, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1. He's the empowering spirit. On one level, what I just said could make you despair. what's What's the point? Why bother trying to share the gospel with my neighbor? Why bother trying to, 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 to speak some truth into the life of that coworker or that, that receptionist that I run into every week at the dentist? Why? But on the other hand, I would say that this reality that we're dependent on the Spirit gives us great hope and confidence. If I know that the Spirit of God is working in people's lives to bring them to faith in Jesus, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I might give sort of a stumbling presentation of the gospel where I'm like, man, that was clunky. And God can still use it. You might, you might seek to be a witness and you're like, man, that just felt very halting and awkward. God can still use it. Praise God for that. And while our mission calls for all the creativity we can imagine, and while our mission calls for all the persuasion we can marshal and all the passion we can muster, The final success of our mission depends on none of those things. It depends on the Spirit of God, so be faithful. Paul put it this way. I planted, like like throwing some seed in the ground, and Apollos came along and watered, but God brought about the harvest. And we can trust the God of heaven to bring about a harvest if we are simply faithful. Some people will take this teaching of the our dependence on the Spirit of God and the, the sovereignty of God and saving sinners, and it leads them to sort of sit back and say, well, I guess God is just going to save people. I don't need to do anything. I think our conclusion should be the opposite. God is going to save people, and he's going to use us. The risen Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit is working through his people. So let's speak. Let's declare the gospel. You can share, that, share the gospel in that Bible study that you're starting. And I know there's a couple of you here who are starting Bible studies. The power's in the Word. It's the Spirit who's going to convict and give life. Maybe when you have that opportunity at work to be the one voice to open up and be like, can I just give you guys a biblical perspective on this crazy thing we're about to do? We can trust that the Spirit of God will give you the right words in that moment. As you faithfully shepherd your children, by the way, parenting is basically disciple-making just done 24-7. You're taking, they come to you as heathen pagan sinners, and the goal is for them to leave Believers in Jesus. That, that's, that's, that's parenting, basically. It's the Great Commission done at home. You're faithfully shepherding your children. You're trying to read the Bible to them every day. You're trying to bring them to church. You're trying to correct their sins so they have a sense of right and wrong. 
As you faithfully shepherd your children, teaching them about sin and righteousness and judgment, the Holy Spirit is at work in ways that you cannot begin to imagine. So keep sharing, keep speaking, keep sowing, keep praying, because the power is not of us. So our mission, our mission, beloved, is not to simply make converts, it's to make disciples. We see that in the ministry of Jesus. Our mission doesn't depend on us, it depends on the Spirit. But third, our mission is spiritual and not political. Say it differently, our mission is to proclaim the kingdom, not to establish the kingdom. Verses 6 to 8, they ask this question about, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel right now? Um, And it's not a a, a dumb question. Um, They've read their Old Testament. They know God has a plan for Israel in the future. They're thinking, okay, maybe it's now. It seems like everything else has happened that needs to happen. But Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father has put in his own power. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to you. you. You are responsible for what God has revealed, and here's what God has revealed you receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Go witness for me. So they ask, is the kingdom going to be restored? The disciples ask him if he would now restore Israel's political independence. Remember, they're oppressed by Rome. They knew the Old Testament well enough to know that God still had plans for Israel. And they had heard Jesus speak about the kingdom for 40 days. They're still expecting this political kingdom, this last flicker of the once blazing longing they had. They're thinking politically at this moment. They're thinking, okay, the kingdom of God is going to have to be expressed politically. They're anticipating the restoration of this independence, this eradication of foreign rule. They're basically asking, Jesus, will you make Israel great again? That's what they're after. And a lot of people make the same error today. They think that the mission of the church is somehow political. Some people will equate the kingdom of God with some kind of a social program. For those who are sort of leaning to the left, it's, man, the kingdom of God means establishing social justice and advocating for the oppressed in society. Those who lean towards the right will say the goal of the mission of the church surely is to speak truth to power and to be involved in the political process. And by the way, some of those things might be good and right for individual Christians to be involved in. But I would suggest to you they are not the mission of the church. Jesus says in verse 7, leave that to the future. God is one day going to return. And Jesus will establish his kingdom on this earth, and it will be far more awesome than anything we could ever do through protest or through lobbying or any of the rest. What instead should we be doing? Verse 8, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So Jesus is saying, guys, it's not for you to know about what all of God's plans are for sort of the, the future of Israel and the history of the world. Trust in God. Basically, that's my eschatology, is it's all going to work out the way that God wants it to work out uh, in the end. I'm going to give you something way better than political authority. I'm going to give you spiritual power. The kingdom is about the rule of God being exerted in this, in this world. And he says, here's something better than Israel being a great nation again. It's you having spiritual power and making disciples of the nations. The power that he gives us is not political. It's not social. It is spiritual power. It's advanced by witness and not by war. It is proclaimed by persuasion and not coercion. The kingdom of God now is the redemptive rule of Jesus Christ in the lives of repentant sinners. Nowhere does the Bible call upon the church to bring the kingdom in by sort of trying to make the world a better place. Nowhere does the Bible say that we're going to bring the kingdom in by planting more trees or cleaning up environmental pollution or stamping out injustice or getting the right leaders elected. These things might have a rightful place in our society. We're called to be salt and light. I'm not discounting that. But we should not equate them with the kingdom of God or regard them as the mission, the mission of the church. I think this is one of the places where we can get off mission, where Christians become so consumed with what's happening politically and put so many eggs in that basket that when the basket drops, the eggs are broken. Okay, this fourth truth about, this fourth fact about our mission, it is global and not just local. That's so clear in verse 8. They're asking a question about Israel, a little piece of real estate in the Middle East. And Jesus is like, you guys have got it all wrong. Not only is this thing spiritual and not political, it's global and not just local. Now, it starts in Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. That's their local town. We'll be witnesses in Mobile and Tillman's Corner and Theodore. And we shouldn't just be concerned with Mobile and Theodore and Tillman's Corner. He says, you'll be witnesses in Judea. You should be concerned about Mobile County and Alabama and Mississippi and the southeast. 
and in Samaria. Okay, Samaria, that's the part of the, the country they didn't like. They hated the Samaritans. So people up north need the gospel too. And to the uttermost part of the earth, to other nations, to other ethnicities. Verse 6 reveals a nationalistic spirit. Verse 8 reveals a globalistic spirit. Jesus explodes their desire for just national greatness. He says, Israel is going to be the launch pad for the gospel, but it's not the destination. God's purposes are for all nations. You see, God's purposes for the world do not somehow revolve around just the United States of America. Sometimes I hear Christians be like, oh man, there's all this stuff going in Washington. We must be in the tribulation time or something along that. You do realize our entire nation comprises only 4% of the globe, right? The, the population of the world is 7-something billion people. We have 330-something million people here. We're only 4% of the world's population. I guarantee you God is equally concerned about the other 96%. Like, his purposes don't revolve around us. We are not sitting sort of at the center of this solar system of the purposes of God. God is at the center of the purposes of God. We sometimes act as if some calamity in our lives means that all hope is lost. But Christianity, even though it is sort of declining here where we are, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, how like church attendance is going off and every denomination is sort of going down here in the United States, Christianity is exploding in the global south. Christians, just incredible growth of the church in sub-Saharan Africa and in South America that is massively encouraging. Here's a statement from Boston University School of Theology. Um, I recognize it's a Catholic school, but they note this. Over the past four decades, Christianity has grown faster in China than anywhere else in the world. Daryl Ireland, who's a research assistant professor of mission, estimates that the Christian community there has grown from one million to 100 million in the last four decades. Some people even estimate there are more Christians in China today, an oppressive, communistic, atheistic society, than there are here in the United States. God is at work in the world. And we can celebrate that. Now, that doesn't mean we just sit back and say, oh, I guess the West is lost. No, we we keep preaching, we keep proclaiming, we figure out what do we do in in a secularizing society. But the Christian church, here's my point, is not territorial. It is international. The church universal is composed of all people, of all places, of all times who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. The church of Jesus Christ knows no borders. It's not defined by any single culture, and it does not speak simply one language. There's not one one particular political expression that it possesses. If we're going to embrace our mission, this is what I'm saying, we must embrace missions. We must be concerned about the gospel going out to every nation, tribe, and tongue. You cannot be a faithful Christian and be ethnocentric. You cannot be a faithful Christian and have this nationalistic exclusionary attitude. You cannot be a faithful Christian and harbor racial animosity. Jesus died to redeem people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. It was his sovereign purpose to do so. And we get to join him in that. Now here's the tragedy. 7,400 unreached ethnic groups in our world. Billions of people who will be born and will live their entire lives and will die and enter a Christless eternity without hearing a clear presentation of the gospel, without having any contact whatsoever with genuine Christianity. So where are the scholars who will stand up and say, I will devote my academic talents to the task of translating the Bible into languages that don't have it? Where are the explorers? Who will say, I'm going to carry the gospel over the next mountain to the tribe that's never heard it. Where are the builders who will establish churches and the businessmen who will invest in this eternal endeavor? Where are the diplomats who will create openings for the gospel? And the martyrs, yes, the martyrs who will sow the ground with their blood for the church to be raised up in other parts of the world. See, our mission at Cloverleaf Baptist Church is not for us just to all stay here and have a good time is that some of us would leave. The mission of the church is for some people to leave and to go other places to plant churches. Now, let me just say this really quickly. Missions is not about going out and digging wells and giving out toys to children. It is about starting churches. That's what we see in the book of Acts. The mission of the church is the planting of other churches. 
So that means the people that we send need to be equipped and ready to plant churches. They need to be qualified to serve as pastors. They need to be trained to preach the gospel. I'm not at all suggesting that we all go squirt hell with a, with, with, charge hell with a squirt gun. Let's just send whoever wants to go. No, we want to be selective and send our best. But the fact remains, the mission of the church must embrace global missions. Now, my final point here, it's not temporary, it's perpetual. Verses 9 to 11, we get the record of the ascension of Jesus. Jesus gives this final orders to them, go tell the world, and then he ascends physically into heaven. And the disciples, they love Jesus. They hate to see him go, so they're sitting there staring as he disappears up into the sky and is enveloped by a cloud. A couple of angels have to kind of get them and shake them by their lapels and say, guys... He's going to come back, okay? Like, you don't have to sit here and wait for him to reappear. He's gone, and he's not going to be back for a while. Now, what's the implication? Is get going with the task that he gave you to do and keep doing it till he returns. Jesus, in a, in a parable, he says, occupy until I come. That doesn't mean just sort of sit there, like occupy Wall Street kind of idea. But the idea is be engaged in the task that I've given you to do until I return. This task of making disciples and planting churches and raising up leaders and thinking about the next generation and the next nation, this continues until the second coming of Jesus. Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the end times. He says, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all nations, all ethnos, among all all ethnic groups, and then the end will come. Jesus is not going to return until the Great Commission is carried out. By the way, the Great Commission is not win everybody in the world to Jesus, but it's to win people of every nation. This mission is perpetual and not temporary. So he's saying stop staring into heaven and start preaching the gospel. It's easy to sit there and stare into heaven and speculate about end times events and what's the order of these things. What do the seals mean in Revelation? God's given that to us for a reason. We should understand it. But it's ironic to me that some folks I know who are so obsessed with end time stuff, are the least likely to be out making disciples. Uh, it's one of those sidetracks. God has called us to be about the task of making disciples. And this is corporate. It is individual. This is our mission. So what is our mission? Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus to the glory of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this needs to define everything that we do. Now, my question is, are you focused on that mission? Are you focused on that mission? That is what he has called us to do. It's what he has left us here to do, to make disciples in every neighborhood, every town, every state, every nation, until he comes back. Father, equip us for this task. We are not able of ourselves to do it. When all of history is said and done, when we stand before you in glory,